Hey everybody, this is Pierre Quinn and you're listening to episode number 123 of the Leading Wild Green podcast where my mission is to help you live, learn and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Oliver Marcel, author of the new book, Overcoming the Man Laws for the man who wants to be his best despite what he was taught. Now, before we jump into the conversation with Oliver, I just want to take a few moments to thank you for supporting the Leading Wild Green podcast. You listen to it, you you download it, you post about it on social media, you provide your feedback wherever you listen to podcasts. Everything that you do to support me and other leaders on this journey, everything that you do to stay committed to this journey to be a more effective leader And I'm so appreciative of all of your efforts and everything that you put into this. So I want to encourage you to go back to listen to episode 122 with Jeff Tatarchuk. We have a great conversation about life, about leadership, about finding your place, about about getting coaching through some of the challenges that you face as a leader. It's a really, 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 really good conversation. Go back and check that out. 122 with Jeff Tatarchuk. Okay, my featured conversation today is with Oliver Marcel. Oliver is a husband, a father, speaker, marriage coach, and author of the new book, Overcoming the Man Laws. And out of a passion to see people succeed in every area of their lives, Oliver and his wife, Denise, created Denali LLC. And Denali LLC focuses on helping couples build stronger marriages and stronger relationships. Now, this passion that both Oliver and his wife, Denise, share, this passion has moved Oliver to be very open and transparent about his successes and his failure in an attempt to encourage others that they can continue on this journey and be successful despite past experiences. I know you're going to appreciate this one today. Here's my conversation with Oliver Marcel. Excited to be joined on this episode of the Leading While Green podcast by my friend Oliver Marcel. Ali, thanks for being my guest today. Man, thank you for having me. I, I, it's my privilege, man. Man, so so let's let's go back in in time, man. I know we want to talk about you know some of the things that you're doing as it relates to marriage enrichment and this new book project that you have coming out. We'll get to that. Uh, in a moment, but I want to go back in, in in time and talk about when I first, I didn't meet you. I just saw you. I remember we were in, in college at Andrews University and it was practice. We were singing, I was singing in the gospel choir my freshman mm-hmm. year and our director at the time, Patrick Graham, was giving us introductory remarks and he said, we'll get started. We're waiting on our musician to get here. And and when you finally showed up, everybody was like, yo, Ali's here. Ali's here. It was like this. I'm a freshman, so I don't know what's going on. It was like this swell of energy. But during the whole practice, like you didn't make any facial expressions. You didn't say anything. I was like, what? <laughs> what's up? Like, what's up with this guy? So, man, so how did how did music be, become a part of your life? And have you you know, have you always, you know, prided yourself in expressionless, uh, great musicianship? Man, the it, it's crazy. The the no expression thing actually comes from my father. Um, I, te- I tease a lot. My father is uh, 84 years old. And I, I tease often when we do these seminars on communication that in 84 years, he's only said 100 words. <laughs> 
he doesn't talk like he does not talk, but he has this presence about him. Like, you know, he's there, but he didn't say anything. You're not sure what he's thinking. You don't know if he's, you know, if he's angry or if he's upset or if he's happy, you know, it it just, that's just been him. And I kind of picked that up. I, I didn't even mean to do that. It just happened to just stick with me that I just had this expressionless kind of, of uh, nature around me. And what made me kind of try to break out of it was people would tell me that I, I was unapproachable hmm. and I didn't want to be unapproachable, but I still wanted to kind of keep this kind of quiet demeanor. But, you know, so I try to make some expressions, try to raise my eyebrows. I do some, do some different things now so that, um, you know, people don't think that, but the music thing, man, has always been a part of me. So I um, took lessons as a kid. And I wasn't really into it, you know, at the time, young inner city, you know, kid, African-American kid. I wanted to play other types of music, but the only thing available as it relates to taking lessons was, you know, Mozart and Beethoven. And I wasn't really into that, but I stuck with it. And then when I got the opportunity to shift, mm-hmm. um, and we'll talk about this later in the book, maybe, but um, I mentioned uh, the late Greg Forbes and he allowed me as a young kid to come into his studio And that opened my eyes, man, between this guy, Greg Forbes, and um, another person. My dad sang in a gospel group as a kid. So Juan Marshall was the musician for that gospel group. And between those two guys, I was like, wait a minute. There's a whole other world out here as it relates to to, uh, musicians. And so that was what fueled me to keep going. And then when I got to Andrews, you know, of course, the quiet demeanor kicked in. And for my entire freshman year, no one even knew that I knew how to spell piano, let alone play it. (laughs) And then last Friday night, literally the last Friday night of my freshman year, I got up and played uh, something on the piano for BSCF and everybody just went bananas. Like, wait a minute, this dude's been holding out on us all year long. And then from there, it was a wrap after that. (laughs) So you said inner city kid. Where where did you grow up? I grew up in Baltimore, Baltimore, Maryland. So what was, at the time, what was the culture like growing up for you uh, in Baltimore? I just finished reading a, a really interesting book uh, called The Two West Moors about, you know, two young men who grew up in Baltimore and took two completely different paths. But for you, that experience in Baltimore, what, what was it like? And more specifically, as a young man growing up in Baltimore, what did really the culture suggest or define and how you were supposed to carry yourself? Man, it's interesting you would would even bring up that book because my experience growing up was a tug of war between both of those two Westmores. So my parents were very strict, very, uh, very faith based individuals. So they always pushed me towards, you know, making good choices and, you know, remembering who whose I am and who I am, that kind of thing. But I lived in a neighborhood where the exact opposite was just heavily displayed. So the guys that I ran ball with, you know, were drug dealers and the folk that we looked up to were the folk that pulled up to the basketball court in the BMW 325 eyes and had the nice girls and, you know, big jewels and that kind of thing. And so that was always top of mind because that's what we saw every day. Mm-hmm. That's what our, that's what my friends tried to emulate in school. So everybody wanted to be, you know, this gangster type person. And yeah, I'm hard. I can handle my business in the streets and that kind of thing. And trying to balance that with, you know, the church life and, 
you know, what my parents were trying to instill in me, man, was really, it was a real tug of war as a young man growing up and, and as an African-American male, because in my, it was so prevalent, those images mm-hmm. that it drowned out some of the other images. So we didn't see like, it wasn't until I went to church usually that you would see like Dr. So-and-so or, you know, Mr. So-and-so who was a lawyer or that kind of thing. So you, you have like an hour or two of being exposed to those individuals, but then Mm -hmm. I'm going through the entire week with, uh, Corey, you know, the Kingpin, (laughs) you know? And so it was, it was interesting, man. It was a tough back and forth that you had to do play this, you know, this mental game of, okay, man, who do I really want to be? Who am I, you know, and, do those things line up? You know, do I want to stick with my parents? So it was a tug of war, man. Definitely. So, so talk to me about how you navigated, you know, the advice and example of your father. And then you have these mentors in the music space who are, who are opening up your mind to a different worldview, at least musically. So you have that on one hand, and then you have this, this culture on the other hand that says in order for you to make it, Th- this is how you have to handle yourself. And is there, were, were there times in there, and I'm sure there were, but, you know, share, share with us a time where maybe the, the advice and counsel of your dad and your mentors and, you know, the people in your church, you know, caused the friction with this, maybe this culture or this picture of how you, how you wanted Ali uh, to be as a young man. Man, growing up, it, it all, there was always friction, always, because, the unfortunate thing about it is that the good counsel, the stuff I was, you know, my father was trying to drill into me, the things that I was exposed to when I would be in church or be in these other environments, they, it didn't have a, as great an ROI or as quick an ROI mm-hmm. as what I was looking at in my neighborhood. Yeah. So they're talking about going through school. They're talking about getting an education. They're talking about filling yourself with knowledge and being around all these other individuals. But yet Corey, the kingpin is like, Hey man, take this thing up the block. And I got 700 waiting for you when you come back. Mm-hmm. So we're like, wait a minute. I, this is what I want. <laughs> you know, I want the quick, I want the quick wins. And so there was always some, some struggle, man. And me kind of bucking against the system, if you will, as, as a teenager, because those influences were just so, so deep and they look so promising, even though, you know, okay, Hey, yeah, there's some illegal stuff involved and yeah, there's some potential of danger because I lived in a, you know, pretty rough neighborhood. So you saw the effects of when things went wrong, you saw what happened when things went wrong. So you knew that that was there, but the return was so quick Mm. that, you know, it just made you look at, the things that, you know, my father was saying, like, man, come on, man, I, I'm not, I don't have time for that. Like, I'm, I need it now. <laughs> you know, and so that's it was a lot of friction, definitely. And it wasn't until deep into college, really, that I, you know, I, I started to remember those things and, and put those things in into play because now I was outside of that environment. And so going to Andrews exposed me to some things I had never seen before. And, and that allowed the time and space for me to begin to process some of those things that I should have been processing as a teenager. Hmm. Let, let's fast forward in the, in the, 
the timeline a little bit because you talked about quick uh, return on investment. And you know, as males growing up, the pervasive male culture that says this is the way that you carry yourself, especially in relationships. And there's there's a lot on on you know quick intimacy and the transactional nature of sexuality, but not a lot on building a relationship and and nurturing a family. Like that that ROI isn't <laughs> isn't quick. Uh, you know, as as a family man yourself. You know, how does a person who who has had all of these experience come to the place you've had all of these experiences, you come to the place where you said, you know what, based on my experience, based on my relationship, based on the wins and and areas of life that I've learned, I want to make it part of my mission uh, to help other people navigate their relationships. Because it seems, I mean, you got this IT background, you're into music, you've had all these experiences. It, like, how did that, where did that come from? And, and what made you say, I want to make this a significant part and embrace it? Because now, even, even in the culture we have today, it's not exactly like a thing to do mm-hmm. to, be, to be open and talk about relationships. It's like entrepreneurship, building a business, you know, right. having a yacht. You said, you know, part of your focus is going to be relationships. How did you arrive at that? We, in the beginning, man, it was just what it's turned into is not what we had planned. <laughs> uh, we, we, people would come up to um, Nisi and myself and they would say stuff like, man, we really appreciate you all's ministry. And I'm like, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, I, I don't I don't have a ministry. And they're like, man, just the way you guys, you know, interact with each other. And it just looks like there's real love there. And we just appreciate that, seeing that. And so over time, hearing that, you know, a little bit and, you know, giving some little tips, if you will, I guess they were tips, but people were like, man, what's the secret? And I don't know what the secret is. I'm just going to tell you what we do and what we've gone through. Mm -hmm. So I looked at my wife one day and I said, you know what, let's just, um, let's start a blog. And that's going to be it. We'll write about our experience. We'll share it with our friends. If people happen to pick up on it, then, you know, okay, that's cool. And so that's really how it started. And that's all we had in mind. We didn't think down the road to, you know, podcasts and video and seminars and all of that. We literally weren't thinking any of that. Our only thought was, man, if people see this blog and the blog blows up, man, that'll be cool. And that was really it. That's how it started. And it was really just... I don't even think we knew what we were doing when we started that. We were just going to share some things that we have gone through, um, some issues we've had in the past and how we got through it. And we didn't realize for us, we didn't realize this till going through the process Mm -hmm. that this was really, I feel like more beneficial for us than it was maybe for even the people who were reading because it started to grow us as Mm -hmm. a couple. Mm -hmm. And we started to see, some changes based on, you know, at first based on the obligation, if you will, of living out what we are talking about. So like, okay, if we're going to talk about this stuff, we probably need to get our act together, (laughs) you know? And, (laughs) and so it was really um, a life changing experience for us in the beginning. And then we just started to see, you know, people's reaction and people started asking for more and, can you get up and speak? And, and so it, that's what kind of 
turned the corner for us and, you know, we started to realize, wait a minute, this is more, this is, was built to be more than what we even anticipated. You know, from the host of leadership books out there, and a lot of them now are really turning the corner and adding in the, the interpersonal relationship, especially with your own family as a part of building a strong leader. But for the longest time, when you read books on leadership or business or management, there is, there is no conversation really on the impact that a marriage or fa- and family have on you leading an organization. Why do you think that's a topic that, that we avoid, you know, that we kind of skirt around, even with some of these you know, big seminars and high-ticket programs and well-known authors? Why do we shy away from the impact of you know, what happens in your house and with your family? And how the the shades of that you really carry them to work with you every day? Why do you think we avoid those conversations? Man, I, I feel like I feel like the emotional space is just so it's a scary place, hmm. and it 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 requires some components that we don't necessarily want to touch on, especially in the corporate space or as it relates to how we position ourselves and how we look to others mm-hmm. um, as far as what we look like as a leader, because it, it involves vulnerability. It involves, you know, kind of stepping down off of that. Um, I have it all together platform to really kind of dive into a space where you're not really sure what the outcome is going to be. Like yeah. if you talk to me about certain things in this conference and as a CEO, I begin to cry. Like, that's mm-hmm. not a good look, <laughs> you know? So I, I don't, I don't really want to mess with that. And I, I just want to build myself up, be as strong as I can. And, and dealing with that emotional space kind of goes against that. That's how, that's what I feel. I feel like it's shifting mm-hmm. just to a certain degree. Cause we're realizing the, um, we're realizing the need for, those two components to be meshed together in order for you to be the best leader that you can. But I feel like that's why we don't hear it as much because it's just not, you know, you don't know when you start peeling back the layers, you don't know what's underneath. Hmm. And I'm not sure I want you to know, (laughs) at least not in this forum. And so that's, that's what I think. So yeah, you, you mentioned to the, sometimes the, the workplace isn't the right context or we don't have the right tools. It's, it's not appropriate. Uh, even in those you know, sessions where you have where speakers come in and talk about interpersonal relationships and the impact on corporate life doesn't always feel like the, the space. Mm-hmm. But, but what about in, in the areas where, where you and, and your wife live, work and play as it relates to, to, to marriage and relationships? Why is it that even when people sign up, they pay whatever amount of money they pay to come to a seminar or a retreat or a session or they sign up with coaching for uh, for coaching with you? Why do you think there's still that apprehension, even though we've created this seemingly uh, appropriate environment to disclose and talk about maybe challenges we're having in our relationship. What, what, what still leads to, to the apprehension and even buying in after you literally have already, you know, bought in. I think some of those same reasons for in the corporate space, like I don't want you to, there's just certain things I'm not sure I want you to see about me. Um, there's certain things that I don't feel like I have even dealt with within myself. Like, I don't know if I'm even comfortable allowing myself to see that displayed outside of my head. 
And so I definitely don't want, you know, you as a coach, somebody that I've just met or somebody I have, you know, very little relationship with to know that. And, and, and it, it causes me to do some really hard uh, soul searching that maybe up until this point, I just haven't done yet. And I, I may not know how to do. Often we're scared of the things we don't know. Right. Yeah. We, yeah. And, and so I don't know what this is going to be like. I don't know what you're about to do to me. I don't know what you're about to make me do to myself. You know, and so I just don't want I don't want any part of that. And to stay safe, it's sometimes it's not even about me just bucking the system and not wanting to cooperate with you. It's about me creating this safe space for myself. So I'm going to put this wall up and I'm not going to put a door in this wall. So you can bang and knock on the walls as much as you want. You're only going to get what I give you. And so I think that's really, that's what we've seen. We've seen that a lot of times that people are just in this space where they have just created this, you know, this cell of sorts that they've lived in and it's been comfortable for them because they can control that eight by 10 environment. But now you're asking me to step out of that and you're going to see some things that I'm not sure I want you to see. There's, I remember reading a marriage book, uh, some, some years ago, uh, I think the, the couple's name was Perot, I think Perot, Les and Leslie Perot, I yes. think, mm-hmm. I think yep. and they were talking about going to present at a seminar for, for marriage. <laughs> and, you know, as they were, they were bringing the materials into the, the place where the seminar was going to take place. They got into an argument. Yeah. <laughs> it got into an argument in front of people and they felt, they felt, um, that they felt bad because, you know, h- how are they going to give a seminar on marriage and relationships where they're in the middle of, of an argument. And I remember we were on a, a, a Facebook live in which you, you shared what we're going to talk about in a few moments. But I remember someone saying, just because uh, you know, I'm an expert or I teach on this subject matter um, doesn't mean no, just because I'm an expert in, in it doesn't mean I've mastered it or just because I teach on it doesn't mean I'm an expert in it. So I know I'm butchering the quote, but what's what's how have you seen that kind of lived out in the in the work that you do? And why is it important, uh, regardless of what our discipline is, uh, not to feel like we have to have something mastered or be at expert level before we try to teach what we've learned to somebody else? And I, I remember you talking about Dr. Les and Leslie. Um, I remember them saying that. And it that's kind of been our mantra, if you will, right? We're going to show you that this is real life. And I think, you know, going back to what you were talking about before, why people don't show what they need to show, I feel like in in the past, we've gone to these seminars where all of the information that's presented to you is what I call conceptual information, right? Mm -hmm. You see this, you know, Ikea showroom, if you will, version of marriage. And then when you look at your own, you're like, nah, I don't, I don't got that. So I don't think it's going to work. And so what we've chosen to do and what I think works now is that you have to show people that there's real life involved. So yes, I'm talking to you about, marriage and I'm giving you some information out of my quote unquote expertise, but I'm a man just like you are. And so being a man, I process some things the same way you do. I get upset about the same things you get upset about, you know, 
my wife irritates me the same way your wife irritates you and vice versa. And so seeing that played out mm-hmm. is, is freeing for so many people. Um, we do this Thursday night conversation and it's literally a conversation between my wife and I about whatever, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, angry, happy, funny, whatever it is. And we bring people into that conversation to say, hey, look, these are the same kind of conversations you're having in your house. We have them too. Now, let's show you how we navigate through those conversations so that we're not banging each other upside the head (laughs) as a result. And I think that that is helpful in allowing people to feel more comfortable with coming outside of that walled space that they've you know, created for themselves because now they're like, oh, okay. He kind of thinks the same way I think, but he didn't do the same thing I did. So let me try what he did and see if I get the same result. Mm, that's man, Ali, that's, that, that's a good man. Um, I want to take some time to talk about, you know, this, this new project that you have going uh, really, really excited about this, this, this new book, overcoming the man laws for the man who wants to be his best, despite what he was taught. I think this goes back to the beginning of our conversation about growing up in Baltimore and sort of that dichotomy between what you saw in the streets and some of the regularities of urban life and then what you were experiencing from mentors in church. What what made you say out of all all the things that you were you and your wife are doing in in relationship enrichment and relationship coaching, what made you say, okay, I need to I need to write a book and direct it toward this idea of, of man laws? Man, it's, it's something that, you know, even with what we talked about a little while ago with creating this comfortable space, for some reason for us, man, as men, it's still, you know, you can create the most welcoming, inviting space, and you're still going to have some guys like myself who are still going to give it the side eye. Hmm. And, I wanted to kind of step outside of relationships because often men come to the relationship space, whether it be seminar, coaching, what have you, they're already coming kind of with their defenses up because they're not sure this, this, this whole space seems to somehow often be uh, crafted with women in mind and not Mm -hmm. necessarily with the couple in mind. And so we're going to feel like, okay, this, this is going to be about them bashing me and what I need to do better and, you know, how great she is and I should be appreciating her, but it's not going to be a two-way street. And so I wanted to talk to men specifically just about navigating manhood and all of the things that you will do to make yourself the type of man you want to be will then spill over into all these other areas. It'll make you a better leader. It'll make you a better husband, a better father, a better brother, better uncle. And so that's the approach that I wanted to take. I really wanted to call out men and not in a way where you would feel like you were being bashed, but you would feel like you were being built up. It's almost like me coming to your house and saying, hey, man, I got all these tools in my truck. I'm going to give you these tools as opposed to coming to your house and being like, oh, man, you don't have this type of hammer. That's why your wall looks like that. You know, and that's sometimes what we get when we go to seminars and that kind of thing, as opposed to somebody saying, hey, man, I got a whole bunch of tools in the truck, man. Come come choose what you need and let's work it out. 
So give us, d- define man loss for us and, and why is it so difficult sometimes for us to navigate what you define as man laws? Man, um, for me, man laws are those, those rules, if you will, that uh, have been passed down from generation to generation, things you learn from your father or your uncles or your older brothers or um, things like, you know, from all the way from men don't cry to, you know, stand your ground, don't let anybody take advantage of you and, you know, win at all costs and all of these different things that we've been taught, which aren't necessary. Some of them aren't necessarily bad things, but Mm -hmm. what they do for us as men is they, they allow us to create this image of ourselves that we don't often have the capacity to uphold. Mm. Or the flip side of that is we create this image that is actually detrimental to our success in our relationships, to our success in the workplace, to, you know, our success with our families. And so it's those types of things, man, that have been ingrained in us that we have you know, seen from time to time to be what a man should be like. And those are the things that I call the man laws. And and I feel like in this book, what I was trying to do is, is say, hey, there's some other laws, if you will, I call them the unwritten man laws that we really should be focusing on so that we can um, create a better balance uh, as we go through manhood. But what would you say to uh, maybe, maybe a person in, in- in a, in a leadership role. And, you know, they recognize that the person that they are trying to help and mentor and coach is maybe an older version, maybe an older version of you. This is their first job out of college. And they have really two sets of things that they're trying to live by. They're trying to live by the, the, the wisdom of parents and professors and all of these things, but they're also trying to live by the wisdom of popular culture. And as a seasoned leader, you see them and you and you see kind of this tension that's happening within them. What's the what's the best way to approach or should you even approach? Because I know sometimes uh, things can backfire. But what's the best way to try to even connect with someone who you see in many cases is sometimes making some of the same mistakes or, or navigating some of the same waters that you that you were dealing with? I, I think it's about building relationships, man. I, I feel like. If I see somebody like that, there, there's, you have to be careful, right? Because you can't approach somebody. But there are some people that you can approach and, you know, like grab them by the collar and be like, listen, man, you need to get your act together. There are some people who will respond to that. But mm-hmm. I, would, I would say the majority of folks really respond to relationship. And so forming a relationship with somebody allows them to, uh, to begin a phase that I call observation. And in that observation phase, you are, you're able to watch what this guy is doing. A, a good example, there's a, a gentleman that I really looked up to. He, he's no longer with us, unfortunately, but he, he was that kind of person, right? I was this crazy kid in college doing whatever I thought I was grown enough to do. And he never shot me down for those things. He never pulled me aside and was like, listen, man, you're a knucklehead. You got to get your act together. He would just be like, Hey, come, come over for dinner. Hmm. I come over for dinner and I go to the house, man. And him and his wife having a great time. They're laughing. You know, the respect level is there between the two. And I'm, I'm looking at all these different things. I'm like, Whoa, this, 
this is dope. Like I could do this, you know, like I could be that dude, you know? And I think that's what we need to be doing when we see those individuals is develop relationships with them, allow them to observe you. And, and then you can move through the phases. Like I talk about in the book, the uh, four phases of observation, training, execution, and feedback. You can move through those phases as your relationship grows and develops you can just start to begin to move through those phases. And I think that's where it starts, just forming a relationship and allowing someone to see something different because actions often speak louder than words. You know, we've been talking about in our conversation, Ali, this theme of return on investment. And why do you think it's, why do you think it's so difficult or maybe we even push back on that the first phase of observation and then going straight to, kind of this is what you need to do. Uh, Why is it so tough, especially as men sometimes, to give it time and watch it grow and look for the inroads instead of seeing someone struggling and just dropping that advice in their lap, you know, right, right when we see them? I mean, I'll say this. There there probably are some instances. I won't say that it's across the board. Mm -hmm. I think those phases are important in in every aspect of life. However, there probably are some instances where you may run into an individual and there's a, a piece, there's just one piece missing, right? And so you can drop that one piece on them. And you, as the more experienced person, you need to be able to discern that, right? So obviously, if somebody is in the execution phase, and you recognize that, hey, they're doing it, but they're just missing this one piece, you're not going to take them all the way back to observation. Um, however, I do believe, to answer your question with as it relates to ROI, a lot of us as men are under pressure to make things happen immediately for whatever yeah, yeah. reason. Either we had to grow up very quickly because our fathers and uncles weren't around, um, or, or we became fathers very young, or whatever the circumstances may be, there's some there's a sense of urgency as it relates to our ability to execute. And so, to come to somebody who's got you know bills on their back and they got a baby to take care of, and they're trying to figure out how to finish their education, and they got their mom on their back talking about, "I need your help here," you know, taking them all the way back to the observation phase. They're like, "Dude, I don't have I don't got time for that. Like, tell me how to get it." And that's that's a lot of the reason I believe why we find so many guys who um, who who under the under that pressure, they go to whatever the quick wins are, even if they may be dangerous. They're like, okay, I'm going to take a chance. I know there's some danger involved. I know my life is at stake, but I got all of these things that I need to take care of and I need to execute now. I don't have time to observe. I don't have time to train. And so I think that that's what that's the tug of war that a lot of men face. And. The relationship often, you know, building that relationship and kind of massaging that relationship to the point where they see something different and they may see the benefit of taking a little bit of time and going through those phases is probably one of the more important things to do. That's what I've been. That's what I've been seeing just because that's what worked for me. I was that guy. I wanted the quick wins. I wanted to do things really fast, but running into some of these people that I uh, mentioned in the book and watching how the process that they went through Mm -hmm. and me looking at the outcome and knowing in my mind, being honest with myself, knowing that that's really the outcome I want and not this other outcome 
caused me to kind of make some different decisions. Okay, let me see what this is all about. Uh, one of the man laws you, you mentioned earlier was this idea that, that, you know, men don't cry. And, you know, what's, what's interesting about that particular man law is that we see, you know, I'm a sports guy. We see you know, Super Bowl champions. We see NBA champions. And at the end of the season, you know, when they're hoisting that trophy or they're in the, the locker room and you see, you know, captains or, you know, stars or other people just kind of break down in tears. Mm-hmm. Why, why is it, why do you think it's permissible, like in that place for, for someone to, for a guy to cry and there's, you know, there's no question, but in another yeah. space, maybe, you know, I lost a contract or, you know, failed at a task I was trying to do or, you know, something that was said that really, really hurt. Uh, why, why is it sometimes looked down upon in those moments to kind of shed a tear and just dis- display some emotionalism versus championship moments where you're crying, you know, tears of joy? I think it's because in those moments, you know, when you holding the trophy, that that is that's a moment of power mm. and that's a moment of excitement and that's a that's a winning moment and we're cool with whatever is attached to those moments wow whether it be crying whether it be laughing whether it be celebration in the form of you know food or whatever it is we're good with that because that showcases a part of us that we want to put out front but the other instances those are attached to weakness and those are attached to failure and those are attached to pieces of ourselves that we don't want. I don't want you to see that because I don't want you to evaluate me based on those moments. I want you to evaluate me based on the winning moments and the moments Mm -hmm. of power. And so I'm going to show you those moments. And in those moments, I can be whatever I want to be because everything attached to those moments looks good. So when we see the guy crying with the trophy, we're not thinking he's weak. We're like, oh, man, that dude won. Like, he's the truth. And that's what we want to be. And so we can attach whatever we want to attach to those moments because that's what we want to put out front. And I think that's why, you know, there's that double standard, if you will, as it relates to when you can show those emotions and when you can't. Oh, okay, Ali, this is this is this is real good. Um, uh, And I want to push you just a little bit more. Um, because when we look at teams that don't win in championship moments, Mm -hmm. is it, is it a case where getting to the championship is a sign of power, even though I lost it? You know, we see this in the NCAA tournament every single year where, you know, you get, you get knocked out at the, the elite eight or the final four level. Mm -hmm. And these, these kids, these young men are crying or the team that goes to the Super Bowl and they lose. These guys are crying. Um, is it, is it because they've had a display of power and prominence that kind of filters in, even though they didn't win that sometimes they're given, you know, a pass for, for being emotional in that regard? That's, that's a good question. That's good. I, I, I think that for us as the onlooker, I think that we evaluate those guys, the folk who lost, I think we evaluate them based on where we are personally. So I've been in rooms of folk watching the Super Bowl and you got some guys who are actually clowning the guys who are crying who lost. But that's if you really dig deep, that's because of how they feel 
about showing that level of emotion. And they may not be comfortable with that. And so it's easy to kind of put that off on somebody as like, man, look at this dude, man. What's he crying for? Just, you know, get your act together. You get there next year. And then you have the group of individuals who are like, man, these are the two best teams ever. Mm-hmm. They both made it. You know, it's unfortunate that, you know, one loss and they can understand just that crushing feeling of, man, I was at the gate and I didn't get there, but I'm good enough to be at the gate. So that says something about my level of success. So I don't know how the, I can't really speak to how the guys themselves feel. I would hope that they are at a point in their lives where they're like, okay, I made it to the Super Bowl, so I'm that dude. You know, I didn't I didn't get the trophy, but nobody else got here but us. And so that speaks to who we are. But I can speak to the guy, me being in the stands and knowing that at one point in my life, I was that guy who was like, what is this dude crying for, man? This dude's, you know, that's whack. Hmm. What you crying for? But that's because of where I was and what I associated those emotions with. And I associated them with weakness and with an inability to, you know, man up. And so that's, that's, you, you can kind of play it from both ends. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when we were talking on the, uh, the release event for, for the book, overcoming the man laws, you, you said something um, about, about your son, like this, I think a, a, a quote that you, a perspective that you share that I was like, you know, this needs to be on, on a t-shirt. This is like succinctly really encapsulates, you know, this kind of the whole project, you know, at least from my perspective. Uh, do you remember specifically what that, what that quote was? If you don't, I do. Uh, yeah. But if you remember what it was, can you, can you share that with us? And uh, from not just, you know, re- relating to your son, but for the emerging leaders that listen to this podcast, why is that perspective uh, so important? And I know it'll make sense after you share the quote, mm-hmm. but, but share with us the what you said that's become, I think uh, it's going to be a famous quote and then why that perspective is so important. Yeah, I think you're referring to um, uh, the part of the dedication uh, where I talk about uh, this book being for my son and all the other uh, young men out there like him. Uh, may you achieve 2020 before hindsight. Mm. That's the quote. May you achieve <laughs> 2020 before hindsight. And basically just it's using that, you know, play on words on, the, you know, hindsight is 2020. And, and just knowing as I wrote this book that many of the things that I'm expressing in this book are uh, from me living in hindsight and from me making the mistakes and not doing the things that I should have done and then realizing down the road and, and fighting with the realization that maybe I'm, I'm actually doing these things too late in life. Mm-hmm. And I'm making these changes too late. And I'm turning a corner too late in life. And, and I just don't want folk to, you don't really have to go through that, right? There are some things that you can do on the front end that allow you to achieve 2020 before you get to hindsight and start having to backpedal, which is what I feel like I, I have done. Um, you know, for a good portion of my adult life. And so that's where that quote came from. May you achieve 2020 before hindsight. And I think that it's very important to dig in and find that balance, right? So what I'm telling young people or young men, I'm not saying you have to just um, be devoid of all of the, the fun of your youth, but you need to be looking for the balance, right? So you need to be balancing that with 
the knowledge that you need to get to the next level. You need to be looking at where you want to be and looking for people who are there and observing what they're doing and how are they balancing, you know, work and play and and begin to emulate some of those things so that as you move through the stages, um, you may not move through them. Maybe you'll move through them quicker. Maybe that may be your advantage, but you'll move through them in a way where you'll get to a place in your life and be able to look back with uh, a level of pride as opposed to looking back with regrets. Mm. And, and I think that that's, you know, that's very important. And if I can get one person to, <laughs> to do that, then the book is successful. And so that, that's something that I've been instilling in my son. And, um, it, you know, it's something that throughout this book, it, it like you said, it's kind of the, the thing that encapsulates the, the tone. That's what I want. May you achieve 2020 before hindsight. Ali, I, I call this this section of the podcast shameless plug time. So whatever it is, plug it. I mean, you you have the the marriage enrichment, marriage, marriage ministry, you got classes, you got the book, you got merch, you got URL, social media, man. Just just lay it out, lay it all on us, and we'll be sure to drop it in the show notes so people don't miss anything. Um, but let us know how, how to reach you more about your work and how to stay in touch. Absolutely. Probably the easiest thing to do would be to go to the website, which is Denali, D-E-N-O-L-I.org. From there, you have links to social media, to the podcast, to YouTube, where there are a ton of videos. We do a video series called Short Tips for a Long Marriage. We do a series called Thursday Night Convo. All of that is on the YouTube site as well. Uh, The store is there, so T-shirts. Uh, the book, new book, uh, Overcoming the Man Laws, as well as a journal for couples called Have a Conversation, because we're big on having conversation. Um, that is the catalyst to growth, we believe. So all of that you can get at Denali.org, D-N-O-L-I.org. So here's what I'm going to do for, mm-hmm. for the Leading Wild Green family, uh, for, for our community of listeners. And the first two First two individuals who who reach out to me, you got to send me an email uh, at Pierre at PRCQuinn.com. Pierre at PRCQuinn.com. Use the subject line, uh, Leading Wild Green Podcast. The first two people who send me an email in response to this podcast with Oliver Marcel and request a copy of Overcoming the Man Laws, I will cover that copy for you. We'll make sure we get it signed and sent to you from, from Ali, but you got to be the first two. So just don't waste, don't waste time. Just hit pause on the podcast right now. Mm-hmm. Open up your email, email browser, Pierre at PRCQuinn.com, leading wild green podcast and say, I want a copy of overcoming the man laws. First two people who reach out to me, I'll be sure to get that to you and going to order my copy as well. We're going to do it in one fell swoop. So, Looking forward to to reading my copy and looking forward to the people in our community uh, who are going to read a copy as well. Now, listen, if you're not one of the first two people who send me an email, don't let that discourage you. Get a copy of Overcoming the Man Laws. Um, Maybe you don't consider yourself um, in a place where you want to read this right now. And that's perfectly okay. Get it and put it on the shelf for later and get it and 
put it in somebody else's hands. And if you're not a male and you're listening to this and you know you have some males in your life that can benefit for this, buy it now. Buy it now. I know Oliver has put a ton of work and insight into this and having the conversation about overcoming man laws is going to be great for you. So I know that's enough plugging. We've been plugging and it's all fair here on, on, on the Leading Wild Green podcast. But I want to encourage you to pick up your copy of Overcoming the Man Laws. We'll put all the links in the show notes so you won't have any, any, any excuse. So my guest today, man, my guest today, I know we could have went longer on this conversation, but my guest today has been Oliver Marcel, author of the new book, Overcoming the Man Laws for the Man Who Wants to Be His Best Despite What He Was Taught. Ali, thanks so much for hanging out with me today. Man, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Great conversation with Oliver Marcel about his new book, Overcoming the Man Laws for the Man Who Wants to Be His Best Despite What He Was Taught. And I want to encourage you to hop on that offer that we shared at the end of our conversation. And even if you missed the offer, be sure to get your copy of Overcoming the Man Laws for you or for those men who are in your life. And also check out Denise and Oliver's work at Denali.org. Denali, Denali.org. I'll put some links in the show notes because you're only one click away from connecting with Oliver and Denise and one click away from getting your copy of Overcoming the Man Laws. Listen, that's all I got for this episode of the Leading Wild Green Podcast. You know it's my mission to help you live, learn, lead with confidence. So until next time, take care and God bless.